0: And uh, for those of you hanging around in here, uh, would you open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8. And If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got one for you. There's a black Bible, should be a Bible right there in the pew rack in front of you. If you're new to the Bible, here's a shortcut to Romans chapter 8. You'll find it on page 1003 in that pew Bible. And I wanna encourage you to have a copy of the Bible open so you can see it with your own eyes. Uh, Just by way of reminder, in chapter eight, we're taking a 30,000 foot view. And I'm encouraging you to spend some time in the depths of it in the days between our Sundays. Did you do that this last week? Did you spend some time, extra time in Romans chapter eight? I hope you did. And I hope that you found it fruitful and encouraging and challenging and soul exalting. And uh, we've got another week ahead of us. So my my encouragement is every day, spend a little bit of time in Romans 8. Don't take in the whole thing necessarily, but if there's one phrase, one sentence, one verse that that God captures your attention with, uh, then let that fill your heart and your mind as you pray and as you worship. Uh, Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 30 is where we're going to be this morning. When we speak of things that are inevitable, uh, we often do so with a sense of foreboding, right? The the old figure of speech is that things that are inevitable are things like death and taxes and and whatever other negative thing you want to add to the list. These lists are almost always negative. But what if we could speak about amazing things that are inevitable, if something negative is inevitable, then surely it affects your demeanor, right? I mean, we joke about death and taxes, but they're a thing, and they're a happening, and certainly that sort of colors the way we walk through our days and think about our future. But what if something amazing was inevitable? How would that impact your demeanor? Wouldn't you live with a greater sense of joy And wouldn't you endure difficulties with a greater sense of perseverance? If you knew something incredible is coming, it's unstoppable, it's not up for debate, it's not a question about whether or not it will, but something amazing, incredible, unbelievable is inevitable and it's happening, wouldn't that change the way you live your days? Absolutely it would. And there is something inevitable coming for children of God. It is that we will be with Him in His glory one day. No matter what suffering comes our way or what evil rises on the horizon, it is inevitable, unescapable, unchangeable that God's people will be with Him in His glory for all eternity. It's true. And it's really hard to believe because we face so many trials and so much suffering and we endure so much pain These doubts and fears and sufferings and evil frequently shake our confidence. We could use some reassurance, and that's what Romans 8 is all about. Last week in our study of the first part of Romans 8, the Apostle Paul increased our confidence in our salvation by describing the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I want you to look with me at how he ended that passage that we studied last week. At the very end of verse 17, just glance at it with me. He says this, this little phrase, If indeed we suffer with Him, that Him is Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. So up to that point, we would had all these incredible things said about the Holy Spirit, his, uh, his presence in us, our presence in him, all that he brings, all that he does. And then here at the end, Paul makes this sudden pivot to the issue of suffering and glory. And he's saying that if we suffer with Jesus, we're going to be glorified with him. It's an interesting turn on Paul's part. But just as he was focused on the Holy Spirit in verses 1 through 17, now he's consumed with our experience of God's glory in verses 18 through 30. And he wants to reassure us that even though this life is painful and can be exceedingly difficult, that true glory awaits God's children. So in this passage, Paul answers two pivotal questions for us. The first one is this what will that glory be like? When God sets everything right and we are with Him once and for all, what will that place, that thing be like? And the second question He answers is this, how are we going to make it there? I mean, it seems like a long time from now to then, a long distance from here to there. How are we going to make it? If we study this passage right this morning, you're going to burst out of these doors. You're not going to wait for them to open up. There's going to be an imprint of you in the sheetrock as you just burst out of this building in the strength and the confidence and the joy of the Lord because you know what's coming. You know there's difficulties, yes, but you know that the end of all things, the start of all things, you know what's coming. My goal today is to convince you of the inevitability of the glory that awaits you so that you can live more triumphantly in Christ today and forever. Follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as our firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also justified. He also glorified. Two questions today. What will that glory be like? How are we going to get there? Let's deal first with that first question. What will God's glory be like? When everything is set right and we are with him for all eternity, what will that glory be like? The first answer from Paul is this. It's going to be amazing beyond imagination. That's what Paul says in so many words in verse 18. That future glory will be amazing beyond imagination. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Verse 18 speaks of the reality of the Christian life, the human experience. We are facing sufferings of many kinds. And we are waiting on this future glory to be revealed to us. Now, when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, he was addressing their very own suffering. So when they read verse 18, uh, the sufferings of this present time, they didn't say, oh, Paul must only mean the year 2022. They read it for their moment in their time. And from that day to this day, every Christian who has picked up this book and read these words have put themselves into this sentence as they thought about their own sufferings in their own present time. Every Christian who has ever read this verse has carried sufferings with them. This very room is filled with incredible stories of men and women who have endured and are enduring such intense hardship. Our world is full of so much suffering. And can you imagine what kind of situations Christians historically and in the present faced whenever they picked up and read verse 18? Every kind of sickness and grief and violence has been brought to verse 18. And why? Well, probably because we find renewed strength and endurance when we are reminded that this suffering is temporary. It does not get the last word. In fact, no matter how intense your present suffering is, the glory to come eclipses it. Now, this is where you immediately get to push back. I mean, it might sound really cliché to you. And so your response might be, look, this is ultimately not helpful. This verse avoids the reality of my current situation by telling me to imagine some far-off preferred future. You might think the problem is that the Bible doesn't understand your suffering, but the truth is, you don't understand glory. You don't understand its magnitude, its purity, its grandeur, its infinity. You don't know what it smells like. You don't know what it sounds like. You don't know what it looks like. The best we can do is imagine the best this world has to offer. How pitiful is that? We think a big house is heavenly. We think well-paved roads. That's glory divine. All we can do is imagine the best this world has to offer. We cannot conceive what it will be like to be in the presence of God for all eternity. And when the infinite grandeur of that glory is revealed to us, so will the comparable smallness of our present sufferings. What you are going through this day is intense. I get it, and I believe you. And the Bible never whitewashes uh, the suffering that Christians face. But we have to believe this truth in verse 18 that there is a glory so great, so beautiful, so eternal that we will look back on the suffering that today feels so intense and we will say it was nothing. Look where it got me. Look where I am. Look what God has done for me. That glory eclipses our suffering in every possible way. That's what it's going to be like, amazing beyond imagination. You know what else it's going to be like? second thing Paul tells us, creation is going to be made new. There's going to be a whole new creation. From verses 19 to 22, Paul talks a lot about creation. It seems like a weird pivot, but again, remember, he's answering the question, what will that glory be like? And so in verse, not verses 19 to 22, he describes the present suffering of creation itself nature itself. He speaks of creation as if it's a person. And he says in verse 19, it's waiting with anticipation for our glorification because creation's own glorification comes at the same time as ours. In verse 20, Paul says creation was caught up in God's curse on Adam for his sin. In verse 21, he says creation is in bondage to decay. In verse 22, he says it is groaning with labor pains until now. When humanity fell into sin, the created order somehow shared in that fall so that nature today is not what it ought to be or what it was created to be. It's alienated both from us and itself. And though there's incredible beauty in nature, everything in nature wears down and dies. Nature is a realm of pain and suffering, but it won't be this way forever. Verse 21 says that creation itself will be set free or liberated, brought into the glorious freedom that we enjoy as well as God's children. So instead of futility, there's going to be fulfillment. Creation will be free to be itself. Instead of pain, there will be only joy. And verse 22 speaks of the hopeful anticipation of nature. We're told it's groaning with labor pains. It isn't gasping in the throes of death. Rather, it's waiting to be reborn for this new version of itself to be created by God. So if you were to ask Paul, Paul, is is my present suffering worth bearing because of the glory to come? Paul might answer this way. He might say, Yeah, but don't take my word for it. Ask the trees. Ask a mountain. Go to the ocean and ask, Hey, nature, is this suffering going to be worth the glory to come? And all creation, with one voice, would say, Totally. Creation's going to be made new. I got to believe that means no more pollen. No more shoveling snow, no more sunburn. I hope that's what it means. I trust it will. God's going to set it right. We won't be disappointed, whatever it is. But creation itself, look, you you look at the most beautiful view on this planet, and you are stirred to worship and awe at a creation that is not close to what its creator intended it to be. How amazing is that? We're in awe of a decaying creation, but it's going to be made new. In that future, it's amazing beyond description, creation's made new, not only creation, but we also. Third thing Paul tells us is that God's children will be fully redeemed. So he, he's, he said, just grand scale, unbelievable. In terms of created order, everything new. But now for us, it, it's going to be unreal. Verse 23, Paul connects us with the suffering of creation. Remember back in verse 22, he he talks about creation groaning. In verse 23, so do we. We groan under the weight of our suffering. Paul says, hey, you've got this in common with the world. Everything is groaning under the decay of sin and death. But Paul takes care to show that there is a qualitative difference between our suffering and creation's suffering. In verse 23, he says, we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves. Trees don't have the Spirit of God in them. Mountains don't have God the Spirit in them. You do. Your groaning, your suffering, your hardship is of a different quality a different intensity than the rest of creation so in verse 23 Paul says that there's a glory to come and that glory to come is our adoption God's going to deliver our bodies from sickness and death and again he goes back to Paul goes back to adoption language to describe how God fixes all of this now Paul speaks of adoption here in the future tense just last week in verse 15 we saw Paul use adoption in the present tense so is it present tense or is it future tense and the answer is it's both every way Paul uses this word is right it's correct that By the presence of God the Spirit in us, we are the adopted sons and daughters of God here and now. And one day it will be declared to all creation and all glory that that our adoption is complete and final. We are totally, completely His. But Paul also defines adoption in a different way in verse 23. He calls it the redemption of our bodies. What does that mean? Well, the word redemption sometimes refers to the rescue of someone from slavery. And in this context where Paul has just spoken of the slavery of creation to decay, it's in bondage to decay, well, that word still carries the same meaning here. The deliverance of the bodies of believers from decay will come when God raises us from the dead. So for Christians, our future adoption and redemption are objects of a present-day hope. It gives us courage and strength today. Sufferings of this present time are met with a rock-solid hope, a confidence that the future time is set by God and He is bringing us all the way there. One of the clearest examples of this that I've seen in my life uh, is a story I'm confident I've told you before about a friend from a church years ago Uh, Her name was Jewel Hauser. Jewel had been ill. She went to her doctor for tests. He called her in for a face-to-face meeting. And he told her that her condition was terminal and that her end would come very quickly. As she told me this story before her passing, she said the doctor was sobbing, just tears pouring out of his eyes as he tells her this news. He finally finished talking and Jewel responded to him. She said, dear, why are you crying? You haven't given me bad news. You've given me good news. Look, I don't want to die, but I want to see Jesus. Sufferings of this present time met with the hope of a God who makes all things new and redeems our bodies. Oh, that's the stuff of life, friends. Friends. That's courage and strength that we have in a God who is setting everything right. What will our future glory be like? It's better than we can imagine in a creation where everything is made new and our bodies redeemed, whole. No more death and decay. It's going to be incredible. But the problem is this. We got a long way to go, it seems. A long way from here to there, from now to then. So that's the next question Paul deals with. How will we get there? And it sounds great. I just don't know how I'm going to make it. Well, Paul identifies the sources of our strength that will get us there. And the first is this. It's the Spirit's prayer. In verses 26 and 27, God the Holy Spirit prays you all the way to glory. We spend some time in these two verses back in the fall during our sermon series on prayer. And you might remember these verses don't necessarily teach us to pray, but they teach us that God the Spirit prays for us. Look at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. Back in verse 22, creation groans. Back in verse 23, we groan. Now here in verse 26, God the Spirit groans as He intercedes for us. That groaning, it, it's a grieving. It, it's, it's, a, it's a response to the heaviness of the situation. And it's hard to imagine God groaning or grieving. But isn't this the same thing that happened in John chapter 11, when Jesus stood in front of the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Look, Jesus knew what was going to happen that day. He he knew that he was just a few words away from Lazarus hopping up and coming out of that tomb more alive than he had ever been. But still, in the presence of the decay and death of creation, Jesus wept. He shared in the sorrow of his people whose lives were crushed by sin. But our God is not merely a weeping God. He is a helping God. Paul tells us in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is our weakness? Everything. And there's nothing we're strong at, nothing we're independent at. Uh, All of human existence, our entire human condition is weakness. We're weak under the sin that wreaks havoc on our world and on our lives. And so God, the Holy Spirit, enters into our weakness to help us because according to verse 26, we do not know what to pray for as we should. How is it that we don't know what to pray for? Two ways. First of all, in our self-centeredness, we may pray our will rather than God's will. Don't we do that all the time? We, we come with with our prescriptions for God. In Jesus' name, here's what I want you to do. From my finite brain and my limited perspective on all this, here's what you've got to do, God, to make it right. Amen. That's my will. That's, that's not God's will. So, so we don't know what to pray for as we should. That's one way we, we might get prayer wrong. But the second is this. Have you ever faced hardship so intense that you just sat before God naked in your grief without words to speak? I think this is where God the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He groans with us in our sorrow. He feels it. He knows it. And in that moment when we don't have the words, He intercedes on our behalf. God the Spirit prays for us according to the perfect will of the Father. If we don't have the words to pray, He has the words. And if we don't know what to pray, He knows. He knows. And if we pray it wrong, He prays it right every single time. How will you get to God's future glory? God the Spirit will pray you all the way there. There's a second way we're going to get there. It's by the Father's protection. It's the Spirit's prayer and it's the Father's protection. In verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. We know that all things work together for the good. What things? All things. All things? All things. Now's the time to get your whatabouts out of your system. And you may have some legitimate whatabouts. But brothers and sisters, we have to believe the Word of God on this. All things means all things. And what's Paul telling us about all these things? Well, all things work together for good. Now, look, this verse, in my estimation, is notoriously misused. And the reason we misuse it is because we get the word good wrong. All things work together for the good. Here's what happens is we take on the role of defining what is good. Good. And that's where verse 28 goes south for us in our experience, or when we try to give it to hurting friends to encourage them. All things work together for the good. And so then in our mind, we've defined the good. Here's our preferred present. Here's how we think all things should be set right and and, and calm and peace and comfort should be returned to our lives. But this is not a define your own word type of verse. Good is not determined by what Cody thinks is good in the moment, though I have opinions about what God should do for my good. We know what's good in this passage and and what is the good that Paul has been writing about this whole time. The good, the goal towards which we're moving is the redemption of our bodies from the power of sin and our glorification with Christ. That's the good. All things work together for the good. All things work together for the redemption of our bodies and our glorification with Christ for all eternity. That's where we're headed. That's where our future is moving. And so we've used this verse inappropriately to sort of say, well, you know, there's a purpose in all of our suffering and haven't you done that? You've gone through a hard day and you're like, well, God's got to have some reason for doing this because now I'm going to look for what that reason is and try to figure out the good purpose for the hard thing I've been through. But that's not what Romans eight twenty eight is telling us. God's purpose is not some mysterious unknown. His purpose is clear. It is to get you out of that decaying body and out of this decaying creation and into His radiant glory forever. And this verse is telling us there is nothing we will encounter that will stop our Heavenly Father from accomplishing that good purpose. He is sovereign over every aspect of our lives, even in our suffering. His sovereignty brings us to His glory. Every joy and every heartache is bringing us closer and closer to Him for all eternity. And who is this for? It's for those who love God. It's the only time in the book of Romans that Paul references our love for God. This is for those who have experienced his love, those who have the spirit. Those are the ones who love God and live in the fortress of Romans 8.28. How are we gonna make it to his glory? The spirit prays, the father protects, finally. We will make it in the son's image we're going to make it in the image of the son god has a goal in mind and that goal is to transform us in the here and now into the image of his son and that transformation is complete the day we see him face to face look at verse 29 for those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, the image of His Son, Jesus Christ crucified, risen again, glorified. That's the image we're being conformed to, and the here and now being transformed into this likeness. And who is Paul speaking of in verse 29? Who are those whom God foreknew and predestined? Well, those are believers. And what is it that God has Predestined or preordained for his children that we would be conformed, transformed to the image of his son. So, in the simplest terms, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of the son? It means that we would become like Jesus. John Stott said that the transformation begins here and now in our character and conduct, and it it carries on through the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's brought to completion. Only when Christ comes and we see Him and our bodies become like the body of His glory. How do we know that God the Father will do this? How do we know that He will really accomplish this? That we will be actually conformed to the image of the Son? Well, in these verses, Paul gives us what is called the golden chain of salvation. There are five links in this chain. I want you to see them. In verse 29, he speaks of God's foreknowledge, and then he speaks of God's predestination of believers. Then he speaks of our calling, our justification, and our glorification. This is the golden chain of salvation. Not every aspect of salvation is mentioned here. Paul doesn't mention adoption in this chain. He doesn't mention faith or repentance or sanctification. And that's okay because his point here is not to provide us with an exhaustive list of the order of salvation. Brethren, he wants us to understand God's invincible purpose in bringing us to glorification. What God begins, He completes And the order of these five links in the chain of salvation are essential. Foreknowledge, those whom he foreknew. So, So God knows us before there is an us. And his knowledge of you is not just an intellectual knowledge, like he knows a few facts about you, your favorite color, your favorite beverage, whatever. That's not the thing. See, God knows you in a relational sense. His knowledge for you is a compassionate knowledge. He sets his love on you. So before you exist, God foreknows you and he loves you. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. God establishes our final destiny. He determines to save us and ensures us that we will fellowship with him for all eternity. God doesn't foreknow us and then cast a wish that we will make it to that glory. He predestines it. He sets it. He chisels it in stone. This is what God the Creator determines. You will make it to His glory. He foreknew you and He predestined you. Now look, there are many in our church who disagree with the doctrine of predestination. And some of the ways that doctrine has been portrayed is frankly disagreeable. There's been... Just this cottage industry of jerks who talk about predestination, quite frankly. And it's a sad thing because we have to deal with the word on the page. My goal is not to get you to accept John Calvin into your heart. My goal is for you to not wince when you look at this word, but to understand the beauty and glory of it. That here God has set your future solid It will not waver. It cannot deviate. He has determined that you, the one he has set his love on, will make it all the way through every step of your life to his glory. He knew you before there was a you and set his love on you. He predetermined the path of your life and your ultimate destiny with him. Then you were born. And you entered a world of sin, and your body immediately is decaying under the weight of sin. And it is in your sin and your rebellion against God under Adam's curse that the God who foreknew you and the God who predestined you called you out of your sin. And that calling came in some hearing of the gospel. You read the Bible. You, you heard the word. So A vision was given, and you asked a believer, explain this vision to me. The gospel came to you in some way when the God of all things called you by name. In hearing his call, you said yes to Jesus Christ. You turned from your sin in yourself and made Christ the Lord of your life. And at that moment, the God who foreknew you and predestined you and called you justified you, declared you not guilty of your sin, and credited you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A declaration once and for all that holds you all the way to your glorification. Foreknowledge, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Your glorification is God's invincible purpose. Nothing can derail this. God has brought you all the way and will take you all the way with His grip on you. He will not lose you. Rather, everything you face will be used by God towards His good purpose which is your glorification where you will ultimately, finally be like the image of God the Son. Listen, glory awaits every child of God because God makes it so. That's why all the glory is His. That's why Christians don't come in here trembling, weak, concerned, not certain about what the days to come are going to be like. Look, there there are certainly fearful things that we face and will face. But we know where all of this goes. And we know who holds it and who takes us all the way. We've answered two questions today. What will God's glory be like? Better than you can imagine. In a new creation. With new bodies. What will it be like to wake up and not be dying? I want to know. And we will know. That's what it's going to be like. The second question, how do we get there? God the Spirit prays. God the Father protects. God the Son is the one whose image we are conformed to. He's going to carry us all the way home. The Bible helps us with our limited imaginations. The Bible closes by giving us an eyewitness account of what that glory is going to be like. So I just want you to hear it, and I want you to see it, and I want you to imagine it. I want to read just a few passages from the book of Revelation where John gives us an eyewitness account of glory. So I I want you to listen and engage your imagination. From Revelation 5, John says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them sing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, That our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come. Every day we are ready. You know the difficulty of our days. You know every name and every story in this room. You've counted every tear. Not one heartache has been experienced outside of your presence. Lord, you're near to us in all of it. And so, Lord, thank you for holding us and carrying us and getting us through. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here those who love you, those who have the Spirit in them, Lord, give them your courage, your strength for the hardship they face this day. All that you have, Lord, give it to us. Every ounce of mercy and grace, hope and courage, Lord, we need it all. And we'll need it in that same amount tomorrow, perhaps even just later today. We just don't have the reserves to hang on to it, but Lord, we need it so much. God, I pray that this glimpse of our future glory would give us endurance for these fleeting days. Uh, Father, be merciful and compassionate and gentle and give us your strength. God, I pray for a friend in here that doesn't know you as their savior. They can't be numbered among those who love you because they don't know your love themselves. Lord, I pray that they would hear your call today, that they would say yes to Christ and know that their glory is set with him forever and ever. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.